Okay, here we go. All right, we are on a time crunch. So, I am going to, uh, you know, I don't want to tell you to stop talking, but you should stop talking. Um, the preschool is going to be here in 58 minutes, so. Um, okay, so, Pastor Kendall is not here today because he's graduating with his doctorate, um, so it's a good reason why he's not here today, unlike last time I saw you. He was, he was not, well, he was, he was sick. Um, so, but since we didn't want, finish last time, uh, and also we're on a time crunch, I thought we would um, finish up what we started, and also do a little bit, uh, something a little bit more <laughs> according to my intention originally. So, um, we are, are doing the Old Testament roots of Mary, and we got through um, the New Eve and the New Ark, and we basically had just started the um, Royal Queen, and we kind of raced through that, so we're actually going to start there, but before we start there... Um, the, uh, the, the, the thing is, is that there is Old Testament roots of Mary and her role in the story of salvation. And we are taking a look at that because of a variety of reasons. One is to show how the New Testament is written with the Old Testament and that um, there are things as Lutherans that we have been kind of taught about Mary that maybe have been isolated from the Old Testament. And it's good for us to kind of get back into God's word to see um, why Mary is so prominent in the New Testament. All right, but also a couple of these things I really wanted to show out, though, is that um, the... um, I forgot to put page numbers on here, so I apologize for that. But I believe this is a, let's see here, one, two, three, page four. Um, it's a, just before we start the new arc. So the, uh, the idea of the new Eve is um, something really important in understanding who Mary is because of a couple things. One is the wedding at Cana where Jesus calls Mary woman. And unfortunately, even through the Reformation and even modern interpreters, they, they kind of do backbends to say why that's not disrespectful. Um, that's not, you know, and really um, respecting his mother or, you know, showing proper honor to their elders, that, that's not really part of the text. And um, that's why it's helpful for us because then we don't get distracted with a lot of the other the other things about that. So it's important to understand Mary as the new Eve because of the role of woman in the Gospel of John. So you can't understand the Gospel of John in its fullness without understanding Mary as the new Eve. And um, so, so part of that, though, is the, the understanding of Eve and the Immaculate Conception That is a Roman Catholic doctrine that was dogmatized in 1950, unfortunately, um, because that really did make any sort of ecumenical discussion very hard for those who, like us, who wouldn't um, consider that to be a a dogma. But if you take a look at that, um, what's interesting is um, the the reformers, the Lutherans, were most interested in reforming Mary because of everything we know about Mary is has to teach something about Jesus. And so um, this immaculate conception, this idea of immaculate conception, immaculate conception meaning Mary was born without sin, it was an idea up through the Middle Ages and was something that the Reformers even discussed, but not too much, mainly because they weren't, it wasn't that they, weren't, they were uncomfortable talking about it or completely disagreed with it. The main thing 
for them was the distraction it was about Jesus. So you have Martin Luther who, who basically says, you know, we really shouldn't make a big deal about this because the discussion has to do with Jesus being sinless. But there's another guy, Casper Huber, or if you put in the Latin, Hubernus, Hubernius. Um, he was a pastor in a variety of different places, from Wittenberg to Orlinger to uh, some other place. And he, he has some very interesting things, but one of the interesting things about him was is that this idea of Mary being immaculate came about to combat heresy, the Eutychian heresy, which believed that um, Mary was conceived and born in sin, and so Christ must not have gotten his flesh from her, but brought his flesh from heaven in order to avoid the taint of sin. And so, uh, Hubernius and and then also Luther, uh, all these reformers were like, well, Luther got his flesh from Mary, and so Mary's flesh has to be purified in order for, again, this is a logical statement, not necessarily a scriptural statement, um, and so, so what's interesting about this is there's this wrestling with this doctrine, which most people don't do these days because they just completely push it to the side. Well, we don't believe that. Okay, well, we don't believe it like we believe in the second article of the creed, but we should explore what this doctrine says so that it, we could actually gain something from it. Because... Where did Jesus get his flesh from? And what does that impact on our, our salvation and what we know about Jesus? So, so them wrestling with the Immaculate Conception is very helpful for us because as we wrestle with it, something comes out of it that's really helpful for us. Yeah, Leah. Along the lines of like, where did Jesus get his flesh from? Interesting when they talk about um, go through, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, it goes through the lineage mm-hmm. um, leading to Christ. Right. And I reread it, and I guess maybe I should realize this, but the, the lineage came through Joseph and not Mary. Right. So that confuses me because it's like if Joseph wasn't really part of the conception, how right. is Jesus part of the line? And so then that question. Yeah, actually, uh, that, that will come into it a little more as we talk about Queen of Heaven, Mary as a Queen of Heaven, because the most important thing about that lineage is to establish Jesus' lineage as a line of David. So not from a biological or physical perspective, or, or, uh, it, but to establish him being in line of David, which then goes to the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Hail, Hail, line of Judah, um, so, so now, there you go. Um, that, that, that's the reason why. But, but again, we, as we wrestle with these things, we might not come to the end of it and say, oh, we agree that we, we believe the same thing. However, when we wrestle with them, we do gain, we, we, we do gain something from this discussion. So, um, I don't know if you guys have ever talked to Jehovah Witnesses before. Um, I, I, I like, if I have time, I will. Because I always like to just kind of... Because they're, they're heretics. I mean, no offense to anybody. That's, I use that term in a technical sense, not in a pejorative sense. Um, so, yeah, so we just, you know, I kind of... I just go right to the nugget of, like, what they disagree with Christianity. And, of course, they disagree with the, you know, um, the Trinity. And is the son the same thing as his father? My son is the same thing as his father. That's right, exactly. Hey, so there you go. There you go. See, you know. So if you spend time... But see, here's the thing, right? So many people have not wrestled with their faith that when a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or somebody else comes in... Because, like, for instance... Um, I'll give a little side. This is tangent. It's, 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 it's pertinent to the discussion, but... Um, so I, I was breaking the leaves at my parents' house, or pine needles, 
and the, some Jehovah's Witnesses came by. And I think I was in seminary. I was not married. I mean, I didn't have any kids. So, um, yeah, I, feel, I feel like, I feel like I was married. I was married, yes. I don't know why I would be raking pine needles. Anyways, I was outside. It was a fall day, I know that. And these two guys come up to my parents' house. And I, of course, hey, what's going on? You know, how you doing? And there was this guy who was like, hey, let me read the Bible to you. And he's, he's, he read whatever their version is. Instead of um, saying uh, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, he uses the word happy, happy. And he's like, do you, want to, do you want happiness in your life? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. And um, he said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. I was like, oh, okay, great. And uh, yeah, he shared a few things about Jesus. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard that Bible translation before. He's like, oh, well, you probably haven't heard a lot of things. So he was using that as a thing to like challenge Oh, guess what? You haven't heard all this other stuff either. Now, I said to myself, I was like, boy, you know, if I didn't know better, this guy could sound convincing. Like, oh, maybe I don't know how to read the Bible. But, you know, I I, I talked to him about John 1 and the Arian heresy that they believe in. And they, the guy actually said, I've never heard this before. I was like, oh, well, maybe you should get back to Christianity. And they were like, no thanks, and they left. But, <laughs> but this is why it's important for us to kind of explore some of these things. Because what we find out is, like the Immaculate Conception, it's not completely devoid of a scriptural uh, basis. It's just that... W- we wouldn't be able to raise it to a dogmatic level, like we can confess this as certain. So, so the idea, though, that Jesus cannot have sinful flesh, he can't, he can't be born with this because of him being sinless. Well, how does that work? How does that happen? Because we confess that he gets his flesh from Mary. It's in the creed. Born of a woman. Yeah, that's Galatians. All right. Anyways. Begotten from the Father, born of the woman. Um, so how does that happen? Well, we don't know exactly. But it's not outside the realm of craziness to believe that Mary was purified of her sin so that Jesus could receive his flesh from her. Okay. Anyways. And what some people will say is that, well, since the first Eve was born without sin, or created without sin, so it is the second Eve. Okay, but can we say that for certain? No, because there's, there's no scriptural. But from a theological perspective, or from a logical perspective, that question has to be asked. And we have to be able to answer it in a way that is not heretical, like the Eutychians who said, well, Jesus couldn't have earthly flesh because all earthly flesh has to be sinful. And Jesus' flesh wasn't sinful, so he must have brought it from heaven. That throws our belief in Jesus being fully man uh, into question. And if he's not fully human, I mean, fully human, then that doesn't really save us humans. And so now we are wondering is his flesh for us. Okay, well, okay, great. So this is why I wanted to bring this up in our Bible study because it shows that not only have Christians have been kind of pondering these questions, but pondering them in a way that actually helps us believe more firmly in who Jesus is and what he does for us. Okay. And also to show as Lutherans, it's not like Lutherans, you know, Lutherans have wrestled with this in a very profound way. And basically, I, th- I think it do, do a better job at it than, no offense to any Roman Catholics, it's better than Roman Catholics do. 
Krista. Uh, first, I'm more and more, I think it's so wonderful that Jesus came and uh, showed us the Father because we can't see the Father. You know, only to have um, something tangible. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, now, again, you know, I want everyone to make sure that you don't hear what I'm not saying. So just, let's just, you know, because um, everyone gets really nervous when Pastor Nelson talks about Mary. Um, I just, I just want to make sure everybody knows I love being Lutheran. I'm, I'm always going to be Lutheran. I, I you know, I, I think the, um, and so when we, our only way to the Father is through Jesus. But the story of salvation uh, is for us. That's the gospel, right? For us. And so um, I just, I would like us for, to kind of explore the whole story. Which then goes to the next thing and the new ark. If you want to just keep rolling here real quick to, um, uh, this would be maybe page six. The assumption of the Dormition of Mary. And Here's another thing, too, is that the early, the early Lutherans all said, you know, this, this is a, um, I'm sorry, Immaculate Conception, 1854, 1950 assumption, the Roman Catholics made it into a dogma, which did actually, in fact, break any sort of ecumenical opportunities with other Christians, because we don't, we don't hold that as an article of faith. The assumption, or the dormition, meaning the assumption, meaning that uh, Mary's body, since it was purified of sin, was carried up into heaven like Enoch. It was. Um, well, Luther and all the reformers said, this isn't clearly stated in scripture, so we can't make it into a doctrine or an article of faith. However, um, Luther Luther, uh, in, in, he actually preaches on these, uh, these festivals. They last for a little while within the Lutheran churches, but it falls away mainly because it was too much of a distraction from Jesus. But what he, what's interesting is, is that Luther and I also mentioned Johannes Brentz uh, from the 15, early 1540s was... We know that the mother of God is living because she's in heaven. She is alive. But how does that happen is not within scripture. So the assumption of the Dormition of Mary goes a little too far to explain something that we can't be certain about. But the kind of the kernel of truth in it, 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 actually, it actually agrees with Jesus as he confronts the Sadducees. He says, Don't, don't you know God is God of the living? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And, and so Luther uses that as saying, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive now, so is the mother of God. But that's all we can say. And that's helpful for us, is that, again, you know, if someone wants to try to challenge us in what we believe, we can say, oh, you know, I understand what you're saying, However, that goes too far. We can't be certain about this, and so we can't make this into an article of faith. And, and again, that's why if you ever do a little history in the 1950s when this was dogmatized by the Roman Church, there was great lament amongst the rest of Christians because it was a line in the sand, again, that was divisive. In fact, um, that's why I enjoy Luther and, and Brent's. Uh, basically, they said, listen, at its essence, yeah, that's true. But we don't know. We can't make too much of it because even if we make too much of it, now we're spending too much time thinking about Mary and not enough about Jesus. Which I forgot to mention earlier, uh, which I said last time we did this, is that most of the Reformation deals with the piety around Mary uh, and not as much as the doctrine of Mary, um, because the Mackey conception, the assumption of Mary, becomes a distraction 
so much so that people focus on Mary. Now, there's another aspect about this, and this is why the Reformation is so important, is that in the Middle Ages, Jesus becomes mainly a judge. It's an article of faith, right? He will come to judge the living and the dead. So if you ever look at Middle Ages, medieval art, which isn't a ton left, um, if you are a uh, Igmar Bergman fan, anybody? Igmar Bergman fan? Not a fan, but I know. <laughs> He's a Swedish director, kind of a downer of a director, some might say. But one of his famous films is uh, The Seventh Seal. Um, and it takes place in the Middle Ages. And it has to do with death. And if you ever, I mean, if you ever watch it, um, the image of Jesus in that movie is exactly what the image of Jesus was in the late 15th century as Luther comes around. Christ is judge. Okay, how many people like to be judged? Anybody like to be judged? You love it, right? No, we don't want to be judged. So I'm not going to go to the one who I know is going to judge me. So people actually saw Jesus as a threat. Well, who's not a threat? Well, your mother. Your mother is always the loving lady who nurtures and welcomes. So this is the rise of Mary within the medieval church. Again, was it really something wrong about Mary, or was it something wrong about Jesus that drove people to Mary? It was something wrong about Jesus. So, so the reformers are seeing this and saying, no, Christ is not someone to be afraid of, but to run to. He's our redeemer. He's our lover. He's our savior. Okay. Once you get, let's say you get people, oh, that's great. That's, oh, praise be to God, gospel. What do you do with all this with Mary? Well, they have to convince them, I know you really love Mary, but she's not the one. So you have all these people who have all this devotion to her because they think it's faithful to be that way because Christ is scary. And if I can go to her and she, you know, Christ listens to her and she's going to go to Jesus for me and he's, she's going to calm him down and he's going to look at me a lot nicer. Okay? So, so this, is, this is a complicated issue going on in terms of piety. So the thing is, though, is that what some people say is we go to Jesus and now we just kind of forget Mary. But when you forget Mary, you forget the story of the Old Testament. You, get, you, you kind of forget who we are as people because Mary is like us. She's the fully creature. We're fully creature. We have one nature, not two natures like Jesus. And so... When we take that, we bracket that out of the story, it's very similar to what was going on in the Middle Ages, but like on the flip side of things. So it was like Jesus was bracketed out of the story, and Mary became prominent. And now we, we've actually bracketed out our saints, our people. And now you see this most especially, especially when people say, my relationship with God is between me and Jesus. When in fact, that's not the case. It's, it's between me, Jesus, and everybody else who's with Jesus. Like when you walk into the room and Jesus is there, it's, he's never by himself. He's got his posse. He's like a rapper. <laughs> by the way, we're going to have a new vicar coming. Um, I'm very excited to have the new vicar. Um, one of the things I... This is about Jesus being a rapper, by the way. Free association. Uh, what, I don't know. Pastor Brzezik might have said this. Uh, but one of the things I like to do is to educate vicars using rap. Because <laughs> um, the life of the pastor is the life of the gangster. Hear me out on this. It's kind of sad, actually, but... And I use three, three songs, raps, from the 90s, because that's when I grew up, that um, illustrate this. 
And uh, well, let's see here. I probably tried it on 10 vicars. Not a single one has understood what I'm talking about. <laughs> However, every pastor I've talked to, they're like, that's so true. So, um, yeah, no, Jesus is a, is a rapper, is, is, is instrumental. Because I tell you what, it's a tough world out there. You think people are on your side, but what are they going to do? They're going to shoot you in the back. Just like every gangster out there. They want a piece. Right, Karen? There we go. Okay. You guys think about it. Maybe one day I'll uh, reveal my insanity to you about that. Uh, Only God Can Judge Me Now, Tupac Shakur. Um, Easy Come, Easy Go, Cypress Hill. And Hey Now by Ice Cube. Hey Now. Yeah, you want to put your earphones on for that one. It's... uh, what is it, not safe for work? Yeah, it's, it's just, But it's deep. Okay. You can go home and listen to those. With your earphones on, please. No children around. Um, okay. Let's continue. Let's pick up where we left off for the last little bit. The royal queen. So this is something where the reformers, too, also said, hey, yeah, of course Mary's queen of heaven, but you know, too many people get so distracted and they just get so, let's, we're not going to really talk about it. But from a biblical perspective, Mary is the queen of heaven. That's from Revelation chapter 11 and 12. And she's the queen mother. So the throne of David will be established forever. So that goes to the genealogy question from earlier. And... Um, so, so the throne of David is connected with Jesus. We don't have to spend too much time with that. But since Jesus is the new Davidic king, there's going to be this new queen. And I think I mentioned this real quickly last time. Queen in the Old Testament always means queen mother, not wife of the king. And you see that in 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Jeremiah. The queen mother is, is a position of high honor and... Uh, in, in 1 Kings 15, 1 and 2, the genealogical introduction to the new king is, in fact, uh, mentions his mother. Now, where do we get that in the New Testament? That's from the Gospel of Luke. Luke Luke's is Mary's genealogy, just FYI. So, all right. So, um, that's not really pertinent to what we're talking about, but some people might ask that. All right. Uh, we see this explicitly, though, in the Old Testament with Bathsheba and the transition from um, David to Solomon. So in 1 Kings chapter 1, Bathsheba bows to David, and then in chapter 2, Solomon bows to her because she goes from being the wife of the king to the queen mother. And the queen mother reigns with her son. It's just that's that's kind of the the framework in which the ancient world did work, and you see that actually in the Bible itself. From I have all those scripture references. You're welcome to look up those later. Okay, now the thing is though, in in, uh, Bathsheba does intercede uh, for her uh, for her son. The don't really work out, by the way. So if you know this story, um, Solomon does still get him because um, he's trying to undermine Solomon. It's it's the life of a gangster, right there. Got to watch out. You got to watch your back because your brother might want to stab you in the back. Um, of course, Godfather, right? Fredo, come on. It's, I mean, it's so applicable. If you haven't ever seen The Godfather, you should. It's a masterpiece. Again, don't watch it with your kids. It's not a kid movie. It's not, yeah. Um, I mean, unless they're older. Like, you know, I mean, Marilyn, you, you probably could watch it with Carl. That, that would probably be okay. But. <laughs> I'm not going to watch it with my kids, though. All right, so... Um, so, but there are examples in the Bible of the mother, a queen mother interceding for people. But she's the only one that actually gets access to the king. Now, but there is a, a unique story in the Old Testament where someone who's not supposed to have access to the king, king does get access. Esther, does someone say that? Yeah, right. 
so that's another level to that story. Oh, because um, we've been reading Esther with uh, Penelope and Daphne, and it's kind of strange. Like, it's their husband and wife. Why, why should that be like an unusual thing? Well, given now this information, we understand that the only one who has really unique access to the king is, in fact, the queen mother, where most of us, you know, my wife calls, I yeah, pick it up. You know, it's like just normal. Well, if I hear the ring, it's, it's another issue. But when I do know it's her, I pick it up. She's like my Queen Esther. Okay. Um, but anyways, so that's why Queen Esther is an unusual story even more than it already is, is that the Queen Mother is the one who has the special access. So, now again, that just goes to show the unique relationship between, uh, between them. Um, now, the Queen Mother does appear in the prophecies, Isaiah 7 and Micah 5. Most of the time, we see those prophecies as, you know, related to the virgin birth, which is true, but it also has to do with the um, queen mother. So then we have Mary as the new queen. Queen mother is the only woman mentioned in Old Testament genealogies. And then, um, yeah, we have the genealogies here from Matthew. Um, but Mary is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Um, so again, it, if you don't know the Old Testament, you might miss these things in the New Testament. Of course, Elizabeth, mother of my Lord. That's an unusual statement. She's making reference to not just her, but to Jesus. And of course, Elizabeth being the elder would never show reverence to the younger unless she was royalty. And that's precisely what's happening here. So, the magni- the, okay, so now then you get to the Magnificat, Luke chapter 1, and she says, all generations will call me blessed, which is again um, a, a, a term of royalty statement. You see that in Romans, uh, Psalm 45. And then also, too, the, um, God will bring down the mighty, not just bring them down, but then we will place them with the lowly. lowly. So the fact that Mary refers herself as a handmaiden or the lowly or despised or the humble, depending on how you want to translate this, this is where the reformers come in really, really profoundly because they, they say... Um, it's been taught about her that her, we celebrate her humility as a virtue, where the reformers are saying, no, 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 no. We're celebrating God's grace because he picks this lowly person to bring up then to sit on the queen mother throne. As also the king of the universe is born in a stable, not in the palaces. So it, it's, it's the same, it's highlighting this reality about what we know about the Incarnation. All right, great. So now the Queen, the queen of Heaven, or the, the Royal Queen, then comes into Revelation chapter 12, and the description of the woman kind of mimics Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. The mother of Emmanuel mimics a woman clothed with the sun. So now we've been established. So what does this mean? Well, it establishes the earthly motherhood of, of Mary. So it's not as if Jesus has a um, only heavenly lineage, but has heaven and earth. So the mother of God, the Theotokos, is something that Lutherans believe along with all you know, Christians. And a lot of people were always nervous, I shouldn't say, there, there was a time when people were nervous about that because mother of God, well, if God is eternal, he can't have a mother. It's been around forever and ever. Okay, that's right. Except for we have Jesus who's fully human. And so this confession is not so much, it's about Jesus and his humanity. And, but I think, I, yeah, oh yeah. So I quote Martin Luther there. 
She became the mother of God, in which work so many and such great good things are bestowed on her as past man's understanding. For on this there follows all honor, all blessedness, and her unique place in the whole of mankind, among which she has no equal, namely, that she had a child by the Father in heaven, and such a child. Hence men have crowded all her glory into a single word, calling her the mother of God. So her glory is her child. It's Jesus. Uh, that's our glory. Who's our, you know, we don't boast. Who, where do we boast? We boast in Christ. So this, this, this is the same thing going on here. And the reformers then, because, because Jesus was scary, they looked to Mary and gave her glory. But the reformers say, no, 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 no. Her glory is based on her son. And when we glorify, like the language he uses here, when we glorify her, we're actually glorifying the grace given to her, which is precisely through Jesus. So when the Apostle Paul talks about us boasting, you're like, oh, we're not supposed to boast. Well, we're not boasting in ourselves. We're boasting in the grace of God, in Jesus. So, um, you know, whenever, when anyone says, good job, you know, like in, in Christianity, hey, thank you for all your service. You did a great job. Okay. It's, you know, you have some people say, oh, no, it's not me, but it's the Holy Spirit. Okay, yes, we know that. However, the Holy Spirit's active in real people. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? So this is where, um, unfortunately, too many people misunderstand the role of the Holy Spirit and God's presence in our life. And so this is why this is a, a good thing to kind of ponder, is that it shows our destiny as humans. We are meant to live in union with God so that his glory might be revealed which then food for thought intercession okay we don't intercede we don't ask our saints we don't say to the saints um we don't pray to saints the saints have no treasury that we need to like get from but the reformers say we can we can look to the saints to intercede for us from their example so like i look to someone because of their faith and their example in the faith. So me looking to them, it's not, I'm not distracted from Jesus and his work, but I see his work alive in a real person. So that's really kind of the fun thing about the reformers. They reinterpret this and then make it more about grace in the person. So, you know, I, I put a little tidbit in there about the difference between veneration of Mary and worship of God. I don't think we, we have to worry about that uh, don't, we don't worship creatures. Nobody worships creatures. <laughs> All right. So, again, Anton Corvinius and Martin Luther, because um, I know everyone, that's their favorite reformer, Anton Corvinius, right? I mean, that was, it's everyone's famous, famous Lutheran pastor from the 16th century. Um, it has a really good sermon on this topic because he lays out how people have just basically turned Mary into a god and not seen her as a creature, but you disrespect her by doing that. I, I think that's wonderful. Um, I, I want to cruise on over to the perpetual virginity of Mary here. So just uh, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 21, for those who might not know, the Augsburg Confession is kind of what makes us Lutherans Lutherans. And the apology is the defense. So I know the word apology means I'm sorry, right? Let me try to say I'm sorry, but that, that's not what that means. It means the defense. So the Lutherans back in the 1520s um, went to Augsburg, this town in Germany, and said, hey, everybody, we're, just, we're Christians. We're, we're Catholics. And then the church in Rome said, no, you're not. And then they said, no, no, give us a day. We'll, we'll show you how we are. And that is the apology. So they have the Augsburg Confession, the Roman Catholics, and if you ever read their, their, um, their response to it, you, you realize it's like the Republicans and the Democrats 
after like the president gives their address, you're like, how, how could they know this already? Oh, it's because they already wrote it before they heard him, before whatever he was going to say. They already had their answers down. <laughs> That's the same thing when you read that. You're like, this, this doesn't even really address what, what the Lutherans are talking about. Um, but then the Lutherans responded back, and that's what the apology is. And one of the things is that uh, they're condemned. Lutherans are condemned because of the invocation of saints. And so it's a very interesting article. I mean, section. And I, I really, really appreciate it. But one of the things we already talked about is that in heaven, the church prays in general. We know this because they already pray here. But... Because of that, that doesn't mean we can invoke them or we can, because there is no uh, definitive word saying that they, we can, we can talk back and forth. But we do get enough uh, encouragement from the fact knowing that the saints in heaven are praying for us along with Jesus. All right, great. Let's talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary. Because this is a big question that I get a lot. And... Um, but there's an Old Testament background in the perpetual virginity of Mary. There is a Jewish vow. So there is a vow implicit in Luke chapter 1, verse 34. Mary says, since I do not know a man, it's similar to when, it's smoke, when someone who says, I don't smoke. They're not making reference to the immediate, I don't smoke right now, but I don't smoke in the past, I don't smoke now, and I don't smoke, smoke later, I don't smoke. When she says, I don't know a man, now, unfortunately, I think a lot of times it's, tra- it's translated as since I'm a virgin or there's a couple other ways. Anyways, um, since I do not know a man, it, it, it's kind of an odd way of talking. So already it, there's an implicit vow of um, chastity or celibacy. Now, here's the thing. Mer- Gabriel makes this announcement. You will conceive. Now, for an engaged woman, that's not unusual. There's nobody engaged here. I just talked to an engaged couple, premarital. Said, I, have to, I usually ask this, you guys intending to have children? Of course, Pastor. So if I said, you will have children, they'll be like, I hope so. Great, excellent. Now, I'm not talking about their intimate lies when I say that. They don't have to, you know, it's not like she, I've never said that to a woman or a premarital couple and they say, well, how can that happen? I'm a virgin. <laughs> no, they say, well, yeah, I hope so. Great. Excellent. So Mary's response should kind of say, wait a second, why did she say that? Because it's, you will have a child. And I say that to a lot of premarital couples, and they always say, yeah, I hope so. Um, Gabriel's not saying you're going to have a child right now. He's just saying you will have a child. It's this time in the future. Now, of course, we always project onto that text because we know the rest of the story. But if we take it at face value, we have to ask ourselves. So... Which then goes to Mary's question on how she's going to conceive. Well, how's this going to happen since I don't smoke? I'm going to have lung cancer if I don't smoke. How am I going to have a child if I don't, if I don't know a man, if, I don't, if, I, if I'm celibate? And then, of course, Gabriel then answers her question. Oh, okay, that makes it interesting. Well, already in the, in the Old Testament, in Numbers 30, there are vows of abstinence for married women, for widows, and then, of course, for women who, you know, are going to be married or maybe not married. That's from Numbers 36 through 8, 13 through 16. Um, This is is kind of an interesting thing. So if you, I'm not going to read it all, but um, first notice that the law revolves around a woman's vow to afflict herself. So this isn't imposed upon her. This is something that she's freely choosing. Um, now, this expression can, can also mean food, fasting, but it could also mean abstinence from sexual relations. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a general term. So once the meaning of a woman denying herself is linked with sexual abstinence, the whole chapter on women's vows makes sense then because they talk about unmarried women. Because, I mean, if you're fasting from food, why, what does it matter if you're married or unmarried or, you know, I mean, going to be married. That doesn't make any sense. Um, 
But if it's tied to sexual abstinence, then, oh, okay. What's interesting, though, is the binding nature of the woman's vow is dependent upon whether her father or her husband, upon hearing it, says yes or no. Because if the father or the husband say, yeah, I don't think so, she has to comply. Which, you know, it's not, yeah, we, that's a whole other cultural issue that we won't, we won't deal with right now. But, but the whole idea that a woman could say, I'm going to abstain from sexual intimacy, it's not outside the realm of possibility in the Old Testament. In the, Jew, in the Jewish culture. So, why in the world would, would this actually be? And we're going to just... Um, well, actually, i got to talk about the brothers of Jesus. Sorry. Brothers of Jesus, or cousins, I have a whole slew of charts going on here. If you want to just turn to the second to last page, basically, um, the brothers of Jesus... Uh, I think as you, if you take into all consideration James and Joseph and Judas or Jude are the children of Clopas and the other Mary. Um, because names in the Bible just aren't randomly chosen or mentioned. Um, you see this also with Simon of Cyrene, the father of... Um, oh, boy. Father of who? It is Alexander. And Rufus. You're like, who are these guys? Well, guess what? They're, they're leaders of the early church. So they're mentioned in the New Testament because everyone will be like, oh, those people. Okay, great. So when, when uh, James, Joseph, and Judas are mentioned, they're like, oh, got it. Okay. These are, that's who we're talking about. So the Mary, the mother of James, um, probably making reference to the, the leader of Jerusalem. Um, and if you, if you take, I think I laid out there pretty easily to, to show that um, the brothers of Jesus, it's just as likely meaning cousins of Jesus as blood brothers. And I think the, the biblical testimony is stronger for the cousins of Jesus than um, actual blood brothers. Yeah, Leah. Okay, good, yeah. You know, like, who cares if she ends up having sex with her husband later and having other children? That, that doesn't affect... Yeah, right, so, so this is where... This, let's get to that. Yeah, so so what? Who cares? Yeah, so a couple of things is, is that, first, the biblical testimony, and I think, you know, truth does, does matter. The biblical testimony matters, and if we add all this biblical testimony up, it, it really begs the question, or it, it, it lays the burden of proof on those who say she had children after so, so then, okay, great. So what does that matter now? Well, why would someone choose to be celibate? And I think most of us, unfortunately, see this as a negative, only from abstaining rather than accepting something. And really, when, so a life of celibacy, as Scripture uh, presents it, is really a, an acceptance of the eschatological marriage of, of all of us. So you're not denying yourself, but you're actually living towards what marriage is already supposed to point to. So Matthew chapter 19, 10 through 12, Jesus talks about becoming a eunuch for the kingdom. And, and then in Matthew chapter 22, 33, 23 through 33, it talks a little bit about how we're not given into marriage in heaven. And so we've got to put those two together. Why are we not given into marriage in heaven? Well, it's because earthly marriages point to the heavenly marriage. And when you enter into the heavenly marriage, you no longer need earthly marriage. The marriage feast of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, the bride of Christ, the church, comes and meets her bridegroom, Jesus. So celibacy is a confession that I'm abstaining from earthly marriage 
because of all I'm living in the heaven or towards the heavenly marriage. And so it's not a de- complete denial of self, but it's actually a model of self-giving and total self-donation. In fact, yeah, so I'm just going to read some of the stuff I wrote here. Um, Mary is living in the eschatological marriage between Christ and the church. The fidelity and total self-donation lived by spouses provide a model for the fidelity and self-donation required of those who choose the celibate vocation. I use the word vocation intentionally because this is not something that's for everybody, just for those who've been given it to. And it's sometimes for a lot of people, it takes a long time to realize that they, this is a gift. And I think if we do a better job of talking about it, especially within the Lutheran Church, it can really be a, a, a source of uh, soothing for a, lot of, for a lot of people who see this, like they're missing out on something. So, so that sentence is, marriage is the environment of faithfulness and total self-giving. This is a relationship. That's what happens in marriage. And that paradigm then also defines those who live as celibates but they live it in different ways. Celibacy for the kingdom is meant to be a fruitful living out of the redemption of sexual desire, understood as the desire to make of oneself a sincere gift for others. So this is interesting. I know we're going to, we're like, why are we talking? (laughs) So if we understand sexual intimacy as primarily as giving oneself to another not as a source of self-pleasure, then that radically changes how we live, not only towards our spouses, but how someone who's celibate can understood can then redefine their own desires for intimacy. So Mary and Joseph were given the exceptional calling to live their sexuality according to its ultimate meaning. I mean, our sexuality is not earthly, but it's, it's supposed to be a sign towards heaven. Total openness and self-donation to God. By embracing that heavenly dimension of sexuality on earth, heaven penetrated earth, meaning what is our destinies now is lived out in the earthly realm. Sexual union from the beginning was meant to foreshadow the union of God and man, Christ and the church. Okay, what are the first words from God to humanity? Be fruitful and multiply. We all know how that happens, right? Okay. So, in the image of God, we're created male and female. This communion is the image of God between male and female. But what, what, are the action, what is the action that actually shows that? Be fruitful and multiply. So that sentence, at first might be like, what? Is actually grounded in Holy Scripture. So undoing Eve's no, Mary the new Eve represents the whole human race in giving her yes to God, God's marriage proposal. Because we can sum up the Bible in five words. God wants to marry you. Don't worry, we'll talk about that some other time. (laughs) Even during her journey on earth, Mary was already participating uniquely in the nuptials of heaven. For her to engage in the sexual act would have been a step backwards. Instead, she pulled Joseph forward into the virginal ministry of union with God. All right, this last paragraph is not from me. It's from Christopher West. If the church holds out the holy family as the model for all families, this does not imply that married couples should never have sex. Joseph and Mary are a model for all married couples because of their example of total self-donation. The normal call is for spouses spouses to model the holy family by living their one-flesh union in total self-donation. In this way, spouses also bring Christ to the world because the marital embrace, when lived as God intends, proclaims the mystery of Christ. So, what we see in Mary and her vow, and then Joseph's acceptance of that vow, and then also because of that acceptance makes it his vow, they, are, they understand that because Jesus is with them, obviously very physically, They have the destiny of their existence. They have God with them right there. And that they're all all married couples, that's what their lives are pointed to. Their union with one another 
is a sign of union with God, with Christ. But if you have Christ already with you, 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 you made it. You're there. So that's why I think it's important, because it actually points to this other thing, which, you know, of course, I talked about rap music and stuff, and I wasted a bunch of time, so we, we didn't have enough time to talk more about this. But yes, Holly. Well, I never thought about it in that way, but the writer was writing with her, so it almost would be like unfaithful. Or oh, step backwards. That's what yeah, I wrote. The step backwards. Yeah. But I don't know if unfaithful is the right word, but yeah, this, this union is already. Yeah, right. I mean, the three of them is, is here. That's exactly right. Now to go to Leah's question, though, if let's say there's some scriptural references, and you know, he had another brother. Does that discount what we just read? No, of course not. It's just that I don't think he had any other brothers, so that's that's why we can walk, talk this way. Yes, Julie. Why then did like Joseph have in mind the divorce Oh yeah, good question. Okay, now there's a variety of interpretations about this, but what kind of man was Joseph? Righteous. Yeah, a righteous man. Who is in Mary, the the righteous one? He is going to come into marital union. I mean, he's going to be married to this woman who has Jesus. And what does Joseph know about himself? He's a sinner. How can he come into the presence of God that way? But what, of course, you know, so, so this idea of how can you be just and divorce at the same, I mean, how can you be righteous and thinking about divorce? I, I don't know, I've always wondered about that. I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. If he was righteous, then he went to, like, he just, what is, what's going on? But unless you're so consumed with your sin, you're like, oh, I can't, I can't come into that presence. And then that's precisely what the angel says. Hey, whoa, whoa, don't worry. This is according to God's plan. You, you are meant to take her as your wife. Yeah, there is that like, oh, maybe he thought she was unfaithful, or maybe he thought that people would assume that they... Oh, yeah, that, that's definitely part of it also. Yeah, that's right. So, but again, what, how does that make him still righteous... You still have to ask yourself, well, if he w- wouldn't he just accept that and say, I'm going to forgive her and receive her in? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, yeah, but th- this is one of the theories, yeah. Well, this is kind of the fun thing about putting the, everything to the stress test, too, about learning this, yeah. So, Nancy. But in the Old Testament, they have so many laws against you. You can divorce your wife, you can't remarry her, you know, and if she's seen another man, no, you, you know, you can't. Yeah, right. So then that's in Matthew 19 where they, it was, they say, why did he do this? And what did Jesus say? Because your heart is part. So these divorce laws in the Old Testament are a capitulation to the reality that we're, we're sinful. So it's not God's good job. It's, okay, I, I will put up with you. Yeah. It's, it's a sign of mercy, actually. But it's not a sign of like, yeah, in fact... Well, that's a whole other pastoral issue that we run into a lot. People celebrate divorce. Like, nobody celebrates a divorce. It's not good. It might be the best thing to do, but it's not good. Yeah. So, in terms of, like, Pastor uh, Jones talked a lot about kind of how there was, you know, this line of thinking that everything the body does is sinful, and how if we believe Jesus was true to human, like, we can't really believe that as well. But in the Jesus sense, too, um, in Mark 7, he says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into the defiled, but the things that come out of a person are defiled. Which kind of talks about how the physical isn't really what's defining your cleanliness or righteousness. It's internally. And so then it's almost like with the new covenant and saying, hey, don't worry about all that physical stuff. Don't worry about cleaning yourself up and doing all these things because it's really what's inside you. So it's kind of like, it doesn't even really matter. Like, Jesus is undefiled because of, he is undefiled, like, spiritually, mentally, right? I, I don't know. Yeah, well, I understand what you're saying. So, so the, the thing is, is that um, when, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is not necessarily denying the role of the body in our spirituality, but that the Pharisees we're saying that if your outsides are cool, then your insides can be cool. I mean, you'd be right. 
but he's saying it's from the inside out. However, the Apostle Paul will talk about sins against the body, but we have to understand our souls and bodies are connected 100% of the time. And so it's not as if it's just the body. I mean, we go into this whole discussion, right? But um, there's many, uh, a person who is physically abused, but once their physical scars and body is healed, they're not healed, right? I mean, because, so, so this is where Jesus is talking about, is that his, he's actually talking about the greater integration of body and soul, not as if you can have one without the other. And so where the Pharisees were basically saying, you can split those apart and it not be detrimental to one another. Yeah. All right. I'm happy to talk longer afterwards, but um, we got to go because preschoolers have to sing. School is cool. Real quick prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.